0: Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features Dr. David Miller from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and Dr. Melissa Hardesty from Alaska Women's Cancer Care in Anchorage, Alaska. They will be discussing the latest data for endometrial, ovarian, and cervical cancers presented at the virtual 2021 ASCO Annual Meeting. This episode is part of a larger educational program entitled 2021 Global Conference Coverage, an update on the clinical development across gynecologic malignancies. For more information on Dr. Miller and Dr. Hardesty, along with a link to the complete program, including a downloadable slide set and clinical commentaries, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say regarding some of the new results presented at the 2021 ASCO annual meeting.
1: Hi there. I am uh, David Miller. I'm uh, Chief of Gynecologic Oncology and Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology uh, here at the University of Texas Southwestern uh, Medical Center at uh,
2: uh, Dallas. This is Dr. Melissa Hardesty from the Alaska Women's Cancer Care uh, Center in Anchorage, Alaska.
1: Self, Dr. Hardesty, are here to uh, discuss some of the uh, developments at the most uh, recent uh, ASCO 2021 virtual meeting. Uh, and we'd like to share with you some of the things that we think uh, were important and uh, might be of uh, interest. We will uh, start off with, uh, uh, you know, endometrial cancer looking at immune checkpoint uh, uh, inhibitors, and the first uh, study is uh, abstract presented is a phase two evaluation of pembrolizumab in recurrent microsatellite instability high endometrial cancer patients with Lynch-like versus MLH1 methylated characteristics. Uh, This was a poster discussion presented by Dr. Dana M. Roque from the uh, University of Maryland. As you well know, macrosatellite instability is a biomarker for response to immune checkpoint inhibitors. However, these neoplasms are heterogeneous, including Lynch germline, Lynch-like or somatic, and sporadic uh, MLH methylated uh, tumors. Whether mechanisms underlying MSI alter responses to immune checkpoint inhibitors is unclear. So, they report data from a Phase two pilot study. Patients with measurable MSI-high endometrial cancer confirmed by immunohistochemistry and PCR were evaluated by next-generation sequencing and received pembrolizumab, 200 milligrams intravenously every three weeks for up to two years. The primary endpoint was objective response rate. Uh, There were 24 valuable patients uh, treated, a small study. Uh, Six of those patients harbored uh, Lynch-like tumors. They did not have any germline Lynch uh, mutations, while 18 had sporadic endometrial cancers. Uh, The tumor mutational burden was significantly higher in Lynch-like versus sporadic tumors. Uh, Median follow-up was 26 months with a response rate of 58% uh, overall. The response rate was 100% in the Lynch-like patients, but only 44% in the sporadic patients, a significant difference. Likewise, the three-year progression-free survival was 100% in the lynch-like versus 30% in the sporadic. And for overall survival, it was 100% versus 43%, also significant. Uh, There were no new safety signals with grade 3, 4 treatment-related adverse events in uh, 7%. Uh, Whole exome sequencing suggested that defective antigen processing presentation and deranged induction in interferon responses served as mechanisms of resistance in sporadic MSI-high endometrial cancer. They concluded that there was prognostic significance of Lynch-like versus sporadic microsatellite-high endometrial cancer in terms of Uh, response rate, progression-free survival, and overall survival when treated with pembrolizumab. Well, this is a small number of patients, uh, very interesting uh, uh, data, and we look forward to confirmation in larger uh, populations. Uh, Many of us have had a certain amount of cognitive dissonance trying to put our heads around why there are different targets for different tumors Uh, for treatment with uh, pembrolizumab. Sometimes it is the uh, uh, PD score and then sometimes it has to do with microsatellite uh, instability. And so this may uh, help account for uh, uh, some of these uh,
2: findings. So, for the rogue trial, Dr. Miller, do you think we should be looking at uh, enhancements to monotherapy with PD-1 inhibitors, such as dual immunotherapy targets or uh, anti- anti- uh, adding anti-VEGF uh, in the non-Lynch-like uh, patients?
1: Exactly, Dr. Hardesty. That is the uh, the obvious uh, next step. Should these uh, sporadic MSI patients, should we be adding uh, lenvatinib or uh, some other... Uh, uh, a vascular agent that might de- might make these cold-appearing tumors appear a little warmer uh, immunologically. All right. Well, now turning to our other uh, uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor uh, abstract in endometrial cancer, and that is uh, anti-tumor activity of dostarlamab in patients with mismatch repair deficient microsatellite instability high tumors. A combined analysis of two cohorts in the Garnet study. And this was uh, presented by Dr. Dominique Berton on behalf of the Gyneco group in uh, France. As you know, Dostarlamab is a PD1 receptor monoclonal antibody that blocks interaction with the PD1 ligands, PDL1 and PDL2. Uh, the GARNET is a Phase one study assessing the anti-tumor activity and safety of Dostarlamab in a variety of solid uh, tumors. Here they report on two expansion cohorts that enroll mismatch, repair, deficient, microsatellite instability high patients. Uh, cohort A1 enrolled patients with advanced to recurrent endometrial cancer, and Cohort F enrolled. Patients with uh, uh, mismatch repair deficient or MSI-high or poly hypermutated non-endometrioid uh, solid tumors, mainly GI tumors, patients received uh, 500 milligrams IV of distalumab every three weeks for four cycles, and then 1,000 milligrams IV every six weeks until disease progression or discontinuation. The primary endpoints were objective response rate and duration of response by RESIST. They report these outcomes by individual cohort and as the overall population. Uh, DMMR tumors were identified by immunohistochemistry testing. The overall response rate was 42% in the combined cohorts. It was 45% in the endometrial cohort and 39% in the non-endometrial cohort. The responses were durable. The median duration of response has uh, not yet been reached in either cohort with over a year of follow-up. Treatment-related adverse events were consistent across tumor sites. Overall, the most frequently reported integrated adverse events were asthenia, diarrhea, and fatigue, most common greater than grade three adverse events were anemia, uh, elevated lipase, and diarrhea. No deaths were attributed to dostarlamab, and they concluded that dostarlamab demonstrated durable anti-tumor activity in patients with deficient mismatch repair solid tumors uh, with uh, consistent anti-tumor activity across endometrial and non-endometrial tumor types. The safety profile was manageable uh, with no new safety signals detected. As you're aware, uh, Dostarlamab recently received an indication just in endometrial cancer for deficient mismatch repair uh, uh, tumors. Uh, We look forward to seeing uh, how this will be uh, incorporated into uh, uh, practice.
2: So in, a, in the Burton trial, uh, Dr. Miller, how do you think uh, Map stacks up to its peers in this setting? Is there any reason to choose one over the other in any particular clinical setting?
1: Well, I, I don't know if we know the answer to that yet. Uh, if we do cross-trial comparisons, uh, many people might think that pembrolizumab might have a little bit uh, higher response rate, but uh, we always has to be a little bit careful about that. I got a uh, note from my uh, pharmacist asking me what, what what was our plan for Dostarlamab uh, uh, in view of the recent uh, approval and then pointed out to me that uh, Uh, The cost uh, of the dostarlamab was greater than that from pembrolizumab. So, uh, that will be interesting to see how that gets uh, uh, out into the uh, marketplace. We don't yet have any information about combinations with other agents, at least that I'm aware of.
2: So one of the studies that we are going to talk about today was presented by O'Malley et al. Uh, And this is a really exciting trial looking at uh, the use of mertuximab in recurrent ovarian cancer that in this case is platinum agnostic. Um, Mertuximab is a folic uh, receptor alpha antibody drug conjugate, and it binds to cells and delivers a tubulin targeting agent, uh, which is called uh, metacinoid DM4 directly into the tumor cells. This particular trial uh, was a phase two non-randomized trial, Uh, and this agent's previously been looked at uh, in platinum-resistant ovarian cancer, but this trial was shooting to open that up a little bit to some platinum-sensitive patients, and they define that as platinum-sensitive patients who were not eligible for platinum uh, for a variety of reasons, things like allergies and other inability to tolerate the agent clinically. Um, the primary uh, outpoint in this trial was to assess response when a platinum doublet wasn't appropriate. They allowed uh, up to three priors, and they allowed prior BEV or prior PARP inhibitor. And they also allowed um, medium or high folic, aster rece- folic acid receptor expression. Uh, this agent has previously been shown to have the highest amount of efficacy when folic acid receptor expression is high, which was defined as uh, 2 plus and 75% or more. And they also were looking at uh, whether or not there was activity in the medium expressors, which was defined as uh, 50 to 75% expression. Uh, Both of these agents were given intravenously on a 21-day schedule. Uh, This particular trial ultimately ended up enrolling 60 patients uh, the trial uh, had some pretty heavily pretreated patients. Two thirds of the patients had two or more priors. About half of them were high folic acid receptors. And thankfully, uh, 40% had prior bevacizumab, and 35% had a prior PARP inhibitor. And about half of them were platinum resistant. So, uh, a pretty uh, nice real world uh, group of patients. Uh, What they found uh, was an impressive overall response rate in the entire group of about 50%. Uh, When they broke it down by the folic acid receptor expression, it was 64% in the high expressors and 33% in the medium expressors, which was uh, consistent with the previously uh, found results that high expressors had a better uh, overall response rate. Among the high expressors, Uh, There was a 59% response rate in platinum-resistant tumors, which is uh, really encouraging, and a 69% response rate in platinum-sensitive tumors. And nicely uh, also was that the duration of response for this agent was really nice. It was uh, 9.7 months for the entire cohort. Um, It was 11.8 months for the high expressors and breaking down the high expressors. It was over a year for platinum sensitive at 12.7 months and uh, 9.4 months for platinum resistant. Uh, When you look at the waterfall plot, this has to be one of the more impressive waterfall plots that I personally have seen with a 97% uh, reduction in tumor burden uh, amongst the patients. Uh, and uh, the accompanying spider plot really shows you that the uh, responses seem to occur fairly quickly after uh, the agent was initiated and for a lot of the patients were fairly durable. Uh, so the uh, secondary outcomes of PFS uh, in the um, High expressors was 10.6 months and the medium expressors was uh, 5.4 months. And again, the uh, high expressors were broken down uh, into uh, the sensitive and the uh, resistant. And as you would expect, the PFS was higher in the sensitives. Uh, looking at the um, related adverse events for this uh, agent, uh, most of these were low-grade and fairly manageable. I think that the biggest uh, issue was uh, new ocular issues. Um, which um, are a more unique uh, side effect seen with mertuximab. Mur- uh, there was hypertension, which has, of course, uh, previously been well-established with um, bevacizumab, uh, and there was neutropenia. Uh, they did have a fairly high discontinuation rate uh, of 30%. However, interestingly enough, that was observed after a median of 13 cycles, so patients were on these agents for quite a while before uh, they had to discontinue due to toxicity. So overall, I think this is a pretty exciting uh, report, uh, pretty encouraging preliminary data looking at uh, Mertoximab with uh, bevacizumab in a platinum agnostic group of uh, previously treated ovarian cancer. And I think that this uh, is certainly going to be uh, an area of developing interest.
1: The discontinuation of therapy due to adverse events was 30%. Do you think this will be a problem in actual use or can we get better at managing uh, these adverse events?
2: Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I think when you look at this historically, overall, um, we tend to get better at managing these toxicities over time. Um, I think it's very interesting that it was a median of 13 cycles of treatment that was required for discontinuation. Um, I think I would need to look a little more closely at specifically which toxicity uh, resulted in discontinuation, to to answer that really accurately, I mean, I think I can hypothesize uh, that if it was the eye toxicity, uh, I think that the investigators um, have done a good job of learning how to manage this, a relatively new toxicity for most of us um, not having a lot of experience with this. Um, I think that focusing our attention on it, there's certainly room for learning I think when we talk about hypertension, this is something that most of us at this point have become fairly comfortable managing, and I think that uh, discontinuation for hypertension alone is relatively unusual. Um, I think that the 10% with grade 3 neutropenia might be more difficult. Uh, I'm not sure uh, what was allowed on this trial with regard to marrow support, However, if it was allowed and they continued to see this level of uh, grade three neutropenia, then I think that um, that might be a, a more difficult hurdle to overcome.
1: So our next two abstracts here probably fit in the uh, theme of more is not necessarily better. Well, the first study will uh, abstract we'll look at here is the AGO Ovar 17 with the Boost trial: optimal treatment duration of bevacizumab combined with carboplatin and paclitaxel in patients with primary epithelial ovarian, fallopian tube, or peritoneal cancer. A multi-center, open-label, randomized, two-arm, phase three, NCT and GCIG trial. This was presented by Dr. Jacobus Fister on behalf of the AGO Study Group. Uh, in the gynecologic uh, oral abstract session. As you recall, GOG 218 established uh, the addition of bevacizumab at 15 milligrams per kilogram every three weeks for 15 months to standard frontline chemotherapy for advanced ovarian cancer. But the duration of that BEV use Uh, is not yet known, with some people advocating for uh, prolonged uh, use of bevacizumab. So they report the primary results from a randomized phase 3 trial designed to address uh, this question. Eligible patients with uh, stage 2b through 4 cancers underwent primary cytoreductive surgery followed by six cycles of chemotherapy, paclitaxel, 175 milligrams per meter squared, carboplatin with an AUC of five every three weeks, and bevacizumab, 15 milligrams per kg every three weeks. Patients were randomized to receive bevacizumab for either 15 months, the standard arm, or 30 months, the experimental arm primary endpoint was investigator-assessed progression-free survival according to RESIST. Secondary endpoints were overall survival, objective response rate, quality of life, safety, and tolerability. Uh, From 2011 to 2013, uh, 927 patients were randomized. Baseline characteristics were balanced between the arms. Serious adverse events of special interest for bevacizumab occurred in 11% of the patients receiving 15 months compared to 14% of patients receiving bevacizumab for 30 months. progression free survival was 24 months uh, for the short course and 26 months for the long course, not a significant difference. Overall survival was 54 months. Uh, for the short course, 60 months for the long course, uh, because they had evidence of non-proportional hazards. They did a restricted means analysis, and that showed, interestingly, a progression-free survival of 39 months for both arms and a overall survival of about 60 months also for both arms. Uh, And they concluded that longer treatment with bevacizumab for up to 30 months improved neither progression-free survival or overall survival. And therefore, bevacizumab treatment duration of 15 months remains the standard of care. Uh, This is uh, one of the things that we may need to pay attention to because uh, as we add treatment duration, we may just be merely adding uh, toxicity. Unfortunately, there was not the addition of that much toxicity uh, in this trial, but uh, it certainly didn't seem to uh, improve progression-free survival or uh, overall survival. Uh, and that, So that uh, maintenance therapy for life uh, probably is not something that uh, uh, needs to occur. Now, this uh, gives us a lot of information about uh, bevacizumab. We still don't yet know about what is the optimal duration, for example, of uh, the various uh, PARP inhibitors. We're sort of defined by the trials that have been done, uh, but we don't yet know uh, what is the
2: optimal duration. So, for the boost trial, Dr. Miller, do you think? How do you think we should best integrate upfront maintenance bevacizumab in the era of PARP upfront maintenance?
1: Well, that, uh, you know, that too is a good question. Thank you, Dr. Hardesty. Uh, what we see uh, in, the, in the United States, uh, bevacizumab use, uh, uh, there seems to have a preferred use, uh, particularly in neoadjuvant chemotherapy in patients with bad prognostic factors, such as ascites or uh, uh, inac uh, uh, the unsatisfactory uh, tumor debulking. Uh, we've got the results of the PALO trials which would suggest that there's uh, certainly a benefit for combining Avastin and uh, uh, PARP inhibitors in patients who, who have uh, the targets of interest such as BRCA mutations or uh, homologous uh, uh, repair deficiencies. Uh, and uh, but now at least we know there's not an advantage for indefinite mass uh, uh, in use, and we need further information to determine whether the timeline for uh, PARP inhibitor use. So now let's look at uh, cervical cancer. The outback trial was presented by Dr. Linda Maleshkin from the Peter McCallum Cancer Center uh, in Australia. Uh, And the Outback trial was a late-breaking abstract in the plenary session, a premier presentation for a gynecologic trial. We were very pleased about that. Uh, The Outback was a uh, gyne- gynecology Cancer Intergroup Trial and was a collaboration between the former GOG and RTOG, now NRG Oncology, and the Australia New Zealand GOG. Previous smaller trials had suggested that further adjuvant chemotherapy after chemoradiation could improve progression free resi- survival and overall survival. Uh, uh, and to address this question, the Outback trial was designed. Uh, patients with stage 1B with positive lymph nodes, stage 2B, 4A, squamous cell, adenocarcinomas, adenosquamous carcinomas uh, uh, with no periortic disease uh, were randomized between standard cisplatin chemoradiation with or without adjuvant chemotherapy with four cycles of carboplatin and paclitaxel. The primary endpoint was overall survival of five years. Secondary endpoints included progression-free survival, adverse events, and patterns of disease recurrence. Over 900 women were recruited from 2011 to 2017. Eighty percent of those patients were from the GOG and NRG. Only 77% of the patients in each arm successfully completed all components of the standard chemo radiation, external beam radiation, brachytherapy, along with concurrent uh, uh, chemotherapy with cisplatin. Median follow-up was 60 months. The overall survival of five years was similar in those assigned adjuvant therapy versus the control arm. 72 versus 71 percent with a hazard ratio of 0.91. Progression free survival at five years was similar. And those assigned to adjuvant therapy versus control, 63 percent versus 61 percent. Again, a a hazard ratio of uh, 0.87, again, not significant. Uh, Adverse events of grade 3 to 5 occurred in 81% of those who received the adjuvant therapy versus 62% of the control patients who received chemoradiation alone. However, there was no evidence of a difference between the treatment groups in terms of adverse events uh, one year after randomization. Uh, Interesting patterns of disease recurrence were similar in the two treatment groups. The authors concluded that adjuvant chemotherapy given after standard cisplatinum-based chemoradiation for women with locally advanced cervical cancer did not improve overall survival or progression-free survival. Well, uh, interestingly, we kind of have a good, uh, bad news, good news situation. So, you know, the bad news or the disappointing news was that uh, uh, giving more carboplatin and taxol, which has been one of our more active regimens, uh, uh, did not uh, uh, increase the likelihood of good progression for your overall survival. Uh, the good news is, is that after decades of uh, very few interesting new agents in cervical cancer, is we now have the development of, of, uh, of uh, several new agents with significant uh, activity, and I would anticipate that these these new agents will probably be the appropriate things to incorporate into chemo radiation as well as consideration of uh, of uh, some maintenance therapy or consolidation therapy uh, uh, afterwards.
2: For the next couple of uh, studies, we are going to look at some very interesting trials, looking at some novel approaches uh, to managing advanced and recurrent cervical cancer. Uh, The first trial uh, is looking at an agent uh, named Ventrafusp Alpha, this is an engineered bifunctional fusion protein, uh, which combines a monoclonal antibody, uh, which blocks pdl one uh, with a TGF-beta trap molecule. Uh, the preclinical data suggested that there was some synergy that could be observed by uh, combining these as a single molecule as opposed to uh, dual therapy. This analysis is a pooled analysis of uh, both phase 1 and phase 2 data in recurrent or metastatic cervix cancer uh, that had to be checkpoint inhibitor-naive. Most of these patients were uh, squamous cell carcinoma. They were pretty heavily pretreated. 87% had a prior platinum, and two-thirds had received prior Avastin, so a pretty clinically relevant population. Uh, The results from this trial... Uh, Revealed an overall response rate of about 28.2%, and this response rate was pretty similar uh, when limited to just patients that had previously been treated with platinum. There wasn't a significant decrease. It was 26.5% in this uh, subgroup. Uh, the clinical response rate, which of course is the overall response rate plus the stable disease uh, patients, was uh, 30.8%, uh, which compares very favorably to pdl one monotherapy. There didn't seem to be any difference based on the histology observed or prior uh, bevacizumab use, which is also encouraging. Uh, and they had some encouraging uh, reports of significant tumor reduction observed amongst patients with tumor in previously radiated fields. Uh, also encouraging was the duration of response in this uh, particular trial, uh, it was noted to be 11.7 months, so durable responses that uh, similar to what's previously been discussed uh, for PDL1 inhibitors. Uh, the PFS um, at six months was 28.3%, um, which is unfortunately a fairly quick drop-off. However, at 12 months, uh, it is fairly maintained at almost 20%, which for a heavily pretreated population of patients with uh, advanced and recurrent cervical carcinoma is actually pretty encouraging. And the overall uh, survival was median 13.4 months. And uh, interestingly enough, at two years, uh, one-third of the patients were still uh, alive. So again, um, you know, this is a pretty difficult to treat population of patients. And the current uh, approved agents uh, don't have any uh, more favorable results. So this is a pretty encouraging uh, result. Uh, And then this agent appears to be fairly well-tolerated. There is some novel toxicity uh, that's seen, specifically uh, hyperkeratotic skin lesions and some mucosal bleeding, uh, which can cause anemia treatment-related adverse events uh, seem to be in line with what's previously been reported uh, with uh, PDL um, targeting agents.
1: Dr. Hardesty, the steep fall-off on the PFS but long tail on both the PFS and OS curves suggests that only some patients will benefit, and perhaps a marker should be identified
2: yeah, I think that this is um, thats a great question, and I think it brings up the point of what we've been seeing up to this point uh, with uh, checkpoint blockade. Type targeted agents is that um, the vast majority of patients unfortunately don't have a response. Uh, however, the ones that do appear to have a durable and meaningful clinical response with very manageable toxicity. Um, and I think that um, the notion that um, a marker uh, should be identified is, of course, an excellent notion. Um, however, this up to this point has been relatively elusive. You know, I think that targeting uh PDL1 expression with CPS score. Uh, is what has currently uh, been identified as a soft marker for PDL1 monotherapy, but there have been a number of reports suggesting uh, that even patients who aren't consistently expressing PDL1 can have these durable responses. And in a treatment related setting, when there are little um, well tolerated options available, I think that, uh, uh, you know, trying to figure out who the patients are that are going to have these responses uh, and allowing that opportunity for all of the patients uh, definitely seems desirable. And I and I hope that we get to a place where uh, a more reliable marker can be identified, but I, I, I don't think that there is one at the moment. So uh, here we have another uh, phase two trial looking at uh, unique combinations building on the uh, PD-1 uh, blockade avenue uh, for advanced or recurrent cervical cancer. In this particular trial, they're looking at the combination of anlotinib, uh, which is a TKI, uh, targeting anti-angiogenesis, as well as synlitinib, uh, which is a PD-1 uh, targeted agent. Uh, this particular trial required prior platinum uh, they also required a CPS score of greater than one. Uh, the agents were dosed uh, orally on days 1 through 14 for the TKI as well as uh, IV every 21 days uh, for the PD1 inhibitor. I was looking at overall response rate as a primary endpoint. Uh, this trial enrolled uh, 42 patients, most of whom had recurrent disease. Um, there was a 7.7% complete response, 538 uh, partial response for an impressive uh, overall response rate of 61.5%. Uh, an additional 33% uh, were noted to have stable disease for a very impressive disease control rate of 94.6%. Uh, Looking at the swimmer and waterfall plots, you can see that these uh, results, uh, again, were durable, as has been previously observed in uh, PD-1 inhibition, uh, and um, the majority of patients uh, had some shrinkage in tumor volume. Uh, Looking at adverse events, um, uh, this was very encouraging. Uh, They appeared to be largely manageable. Uh, and again, things that we've previously seen uh, with this combination, although um, the, the uh, proportion of patients with grade three adverse events seems to be lower um, that is than what has previously been reported for the combination of an oral TKI uh, with a PD-1 inhibitor, and that certainly is promising, uh, and I'm not sure if that's related to the uh, day one through 14 dosing uh, or um, if that's just unique to this particular combination, uh, but I think that that has been of concern with this uh, combination of these two agents has been uh, the ability ability to deliver these agents due to toxicity. And I think that uh, looking at the treatment-related adverse event, I think that that's very encouraging. So I think that this is a really exciting combination, and it definitely warrants further study. And I think that this is going to be what we're going to see in terms of uh, where this particular field seems to be heading.
1: Dr. Hardese, should we be looking at pembrolizumab and lembatinib in cervical cancer?
2: No, I certainly think that um, while it's exciting that there are patients that have exceptional responses to PD-1 inhibition, I think that uh, it's important to do whatever we can to try to uh, increase the proportion of patients that appear to have those types of responses. And I think that Looking at trials that have been presented, that there does appear to be some synergism between anti-angiogenesis type agents and PD-1. Uh, so, you know, combinations uh, such as uh, pembrolizumab and labatinib, which have approval uh, currently for endometrial cancer, um, seem to have a significant response even in uh, tumors that are um, CPS score, uh, you know, negative. And I think that that combination is of interest in uh, all tumor types, including cervix cancer. And I think that the results from this trial would sort of further support that.
1: So I'd like to uh, thank Clinical Care Options for giving us this opportunity to share with you our opinions. Hopefully you've uh, found those uh, uh, useful, perhaps maybe even entertaining, uh, and at least give you a little something to think about as we try to uh, uh, make progress uh, and advance uh the care for our patients uh, with gynecologic cancers. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Miller and Dr. Hardesty, and thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, 2021 Global Conference Coverage, an update on the clinical development across gynecologic malignancies, and to download a highlights slide set, including the various studies associated with this discussion, please click on the link in the show notes.